Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. are present in the book that we're about to discuss today, we're going to have a congenial conversation with two of our friends. Uh, I don't know why I'm talking to myself in the first person plural. However, uh, we are going to talk about Alexandra Petri's U.S. History, Important American Documents. And I have to say, well, I'll, I'll introduce the guest first. Uh, so Alexandra Petri, unsurprisingly, is one of the guests. Uh, the other guest is uh, Mike Pesco, host of the podcast The Gist, one of our favorites, and he's being nice enough to do some commercials about our show on, I mean, I mean we're reimbursing him, but, uh, and he writes a substack, <laughs> he writes a substack column, Pesca's Profundities, and he's the author of Mike Pesca's, upon, author editor of Mike Pesca's Upon upon Further Review, the greatest uh, what-ifs in sports history. See, I'm doing the Alexandra Petri thing for you right now, which is like putting your name with the apostrophe in front. Yeah. Alexander, that's, you know, there's a certain amount of flexing going on there with the Alexandra Petri's thing. I have to say, I did not realize it would be as front heavy as it was because I thought it was going to be like AP's U.S. history and then they'd be like a little asterisk being like, really the AP is not the college board, but this individual named Alexander Petri, but then it's just like really front and center in an alarming way. Um, so, yeah. Well, uh, the danger of it, of course, is, you know, when you vanish from the earth. Like, I think like Sidney Sheldon's books are written by somebody else now, but they're still called Sidney Sheldon's Moonlight in Mexico or something. So Yeah, or like Nancy Drew. Yes. Uh, the Carolyn Keene. Carolyn right. Keene, I think, is several people now. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, assume, I assume that about Alexandra, too, right? That's right. You're like, there's yeah. no Tom Clancy or Alexandra yeah, Petri. Yeah, Come that's on. right. We've got the Thursday Alexandra Petri. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, uh, the one who comes in on Friday. Very, when, when it comes in on Friday, has a French accent. It's just really different. Uh, all right. So we're going to talk about this book. It's very funny. I have been annoying probably both my dog and my partner by chortling from my office about... Oh, I don't know. Emily Dickinson's responses on Family Feud and things like that. So, um, but before we do that, and I should say we're also getting the old gang together. The three of us were together on a show about vexillology. And it was just so much fun. We just all the time say, remember the old vexillology (laughs) show? What a great time that was. Putting the lol in vexillology. (laughs) Right. Back when South Sudan didn't even have its own flag. Exactly. She just brought her pun championship right into all this, the lol in vexillology. (laughs) So, um, but, you know, I feel like we wouldn't be us if we didn't pause briefly. This is the day after... (laughs) 
<laughs> after the Twitter spaces, <laughs> um, fiasco would probably be too kind of a word. This is uh, Ron DeSantis' campaign launch or intended campaign launch, courtesy of Elon Musk. Uh, and first, I have to say, Mike, yesterday on The Gist, you came very, very close to almost perfectly predicting this. I mean, there was enough skepticism in your voice about Twitter spaces <laughs> that a person could say, he almost saw around the corner there. Right. I just thought the joke was the fact of it, not the execution. I was on the Twitter spaces and it's mediated. Oh, I don't even know what the hell it is, but it's mediated by this group of mostly conservatives who I think were mostly against or at least skeptical of Ron DeSantis. So I was getting all the commentary, not maybe the official commentary from the guys running the Twitter spaces who are giving us such great excuses as where there are 500,000 people here that broke the Internet. Elon, you you run this slice of the internet. It shouldn't break the internet. But the ben, <laughs> the Benji Sarlins and those right wing guys were just saying things like the mainstream media is going to have a field day with this. And then they would say, you know who else is Donald Trump? And then they would say, you know who else is Fox? Everyone. Right. You can't not. And I just bemoan that because everyone is mocking the execution of the Twitter spaces. We're taking our eye off the substance of Ron DeSantis's speech, which was almost entirely a lie. So let us not forget that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was the usual sort of Ron DeSantis blend of very dull and absolutely chilling, if you think about any of the content and like the implications, but like delivered in like the least charismatic and most sort of unnatural manner imaginable. But I don't want to lose sight of like those 20 minutes, which are still preserved, I think, in a recording form, unless they took it down, of just sort of silence followed by sort of microphone feedback followed by some people saying there's a lot of people on there's a lot of people on we got to get it going followed by old music yeah. just everything you could possibly want in an ideal campaign launch if you had to make a list of all the things that would go into it i think it would be that and also you'd be suing disney for some reason right. and so I, I you know congratulations i think it went as he intended it to go right. remember when they mocked donald trump's launch event because his perfectly working microphones weren't speaking to a full enough crowd in the the timely manner in which he delivered it. Yeah. Yeah. You're, this campaign launch is important to us. Please stay on the site. An operator will be with you. Um, all right. So, well, enough about that and more about, I, I, first of all, Alexander, we should uh, allow you to kind of describe this. This book has a, a very particular kind of format, right? It is, we're working from primary sources, as they used to say in college. Exactly. It's It's a and not primary sources in the like sort of hostile 2024 sense, but primary sources in the sense that you have that book of documents that they hand you, you know, and they say, if you read all 19 of these sermons, you'll know everything you need to know about America in time for the midterms. And so I always wanted to make one of those. Uh, and that's what this book is. So it's all the other documents that I think ought to have existed. Because as somebody who really loved learning about history, I would always be furious about the documents we didn't have. Like, you know, you, you know, the ones that they burned were probably the spicy, exciting <laughs> ones. And the ones that they like wrapped in a little ribbon and preserved in a box, like those were what they're like, oh, it'll be fine if my grandkids see that. So th these are the ones that I think, you know, fell through the cracks and perhaps into the fire. Right. Uh, and so that's what the book is. Including John Adams <clears throat> and his wife's kind of attempt to, to sext across the Atlantic Ocean with only <laughs> boats to transport the letters. That's going to be yes. one of the ones that people bring up a lot. Yeah, I think it was funny because my my mom was like, well, your 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 grandmother enjoyed the book, except for the coitus. 
So, um, which I think, yeah, we'll have to put that on the cover of the paperback. Like grandma liked it except for the quittus. Right. Um, it does. It does answer the question. What's the greater impediment to sexting petticoats or transatlantic mail service? Well, I actually did hire a fact checker for the book because I was like, I want the book to basically be accurate, even though everything in it is made up. And one of the things that she said was like, the letters crossing the Atlantic are going way too fast. You're living in a fool's paradise when you're having these things go back and forth. This is not accurate information. But uh, so if any like time travelers are listening in and, and are contemplating using this book as a resource, I would like to warn them against doing so. Just, yeah. you know, there, there there's things in there that don't hold up, but hopefully the rest <laughs> of it does hold up. That's one good, of the things I know does not hold up. Good, sedu- good seduction advice though. You know, anticipation, just let, let that transatlantic sexting linger even longer than you thought. I love the yeah, idea let, that let there's Franklin a, Franklin take it over. I love yeah. the, I love the idea that there's a time traveler who's thinking, yeah, I want to go back to when she took off three of the petticoats. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I'm going to use my time travel for. I assume your fact checker also pointed out to you that Checkers was not Checkers the dog yes. was not alive during Watergate. I, I, that's what that was the other big thing, and that Cotton Mather he was just relating some facts that he didn't actually go to some of the families he was talking about in his providences of the invisible world or mysterious <laughs> providences or whatever his primary source book was. Uh, for somebody who's like read way too much Cotton Mather at this point, it was a very like <laughs> embarrassing realization to have. But yeah, yeah so no RIP checkers. But I think like maybe the the thing that's in there, which is the parts of the Nixon tapes where he's talking to checkers, just yelling at him, being like, hey, checkers, my taping is not going to go so well. But may- maybe he was haunted still by the specter <laughs> of checkers. Um, Right. Or, can I can I say, yeah. can I compliment you that interspersed within these flights of fancy, and no, I didn't expect that the Muppets actually stormed the beaches at Normandy. Oh, but what if they did? But every once in a while, you'd have a little <laughs> asterisk or a dagger saying, this, this is, is true. true. Yeah. Like how Coronado, Coronado actually tortured guys to find the lost city of gold. And those were extra delightful. It was, I don't know what effect that was or what that's called, but man, did I love that. By the way, this is true part. Right, because so many of these things are a flights of fancy, and and yet, yeah, I mean, I think one of the asterisks was that that Coronado, one of his captives, the main captive in in, in your piece, Alexandra, he'd given him the nickname El Turco. <laughs> El Turco. What would that even possibly mean? Yeah, I feel I feel bad that all we know about this guy is through the sources of like Coronado and the people in his expedition, because he sounds really cool. Because he was sort of like, let's get these guys out of here. I'm going to just lead them as far away as possible. And that was what he proceeded to do. So he kept just remembering that there was more and more gold in the opposite <laughs> direction and being like, you don't need to bring your weapons. Got to save room on the horses for the gold. There's going to be so much gold and, you know, the love your father denied you in your childhood and all of these things. And you just got to hurry off with me in the opposite way. So, you know, he was actually like kind of a hero, I think. Um, and uh, so... It's annoying that all we have is this insulting nickname that he was given by the people who were just destroying him and his people. Right. By the way, there's, just, no, there's no such thing as reading too much Cotton Mather. I just want to come back to that. Mike, what were you going to say? I just say? Yeah, I was so inspired by looking up what was true and what was false about Coronado that I found this uh, epigraph. I found this uh, piece of writing from, well, it's kind of, it's, it's old. I don't have an exact date. It's called The Legend and Fact About Gold in Early America. 
by Frank Merchant, which is exactly the kind of false name that you would uh, conjure yeah. if you were having a character. And it begins, legends about the gold which might be found across the hitherto dreaded Atlantic Ocean were chiefly responsible for the discovery and early development of the Americas by Europeans. I mean, that's the sort of thing where if it came across your consciousness as you were writing this book, it would be too tempting not to write something in that style, especially with yeah. the hitherto forefront. The hitherto dreaded, yeah, wait, why did, I, I like the, the Atlantic Ocean, which we all, hitherto dreaded, that's just a very funny way of putting it. <laughs> right. I know Oscar Wilde called the Atlantic, or he said he he was disappointed by it. He said the roaring ocean doesn't roar, but he was not as hard on it as he was on Niagara Falls, which he called the first, if not the keenest disappointment of American marriages. <laughs> um, they were a popular honeymoon destination. I just want to say yeah. looking up something from your Coronado uh, piece, that's the most Mike Pesca thing ever. It's like doing more research. Uh, right. I had the, to triangulate. Yeah. Yeah. Going the extra mile, digging one one foot deeper in the rabbit hole. Well, that's what I was actually like in actual AP American history class. And this book really did evoke that period for me of Mr. Snitaker's AP U.S. history, the DBQ. Remember the document-based The DBQ, question. yeah, the document-based questions. <laughs> Very nerdy. Uh, let's get a four or above on the AP test to opt out in order to take higher level courses in college type consciousness. Yes. It brought me back to an American history course I took in high school where a boys' school and a girls' school had merged, but not quite. And somehow or other, through a shuffle of complicated things that I was taking Latin and French at the same time or something, I wound up in a course where I was the only boy. And I had been at a boys' school, and I had absolutely no social skills with girls and barely any with boys. And the teacher was a woman named Miss Vern Hall. And it was her last year of a teacher as a teacher before retirement. And I was the first and therefore last boy she ever taught. And she regarded my presence in her midst as some kind of grotesque joke played by fate. Um, and and I, I was constantly, I was sort of the pesca of the class in the sense that I did want to be, did not want to be embarrassed in front of girls, so I would look up everything in like two or three sources other than the text that we'd been <laughs> given to read, which, and, and like I'd find out that, you know, two people had had an affair or something and I'd mentioned it in class. And I remember one of the girls came up to me afterwards, she goes, Colin, how do you know all that stuff about, about fairs and stuff? <laughs> she didn't even say affairs. She said fairs. Fairs. <laughs> I'm sure you also knew about fairs in your research. You'd learned about the, you know, the world fair and so forth. I was sort of, AP U.S. history was the one, like, was one of the classes where the teacher, because I was like a big sort of like history buff. Uh, if the fact that I thought this was like a fun book to write in my uh <laughs> free time was not enough of an indication of that. So I sort of went into it being like, I know my history and I'm here. And so he like, I had to really work to win him over in a way that, because I was just sitting there being like, why aren't we talking about like, let's deploy in the World War One songs that I have on my two mix CDs that I made for myself for long car rides. Like, and he, he had to, I had to sort of, he, he was like, no, you also need to like learn all of the stuff that isn't you being a weird nerd about <laughs> one. And he was great. So I, I, he came to my book event in Seattle and I'm still like, oh, that was really cool. Uh, Mr. Zivin has approved of me at long last. He also was one of those teachers who like did not ever write in red pen because he thought it would stress you out if he had notes in red pen in the margins. But he wrote these horribly voluminous notes in green and purple ink, which were like no less stressful. But anyway, he, he thought it was <laughs> so festive. So our history teachers were Mr. What Zimmerman? Mr. Zimmond. 
Zimmond, Snitaker, yeah. and Fern Hall. Vern Hall. He had some great names. Yeah, yes. they were great names. Mike, were you? Did you already know about Tesla and the pigeon? I, there are things in this book where you are learning about history, and then then you're told the joke about it. But the that thing was, you're learning—that was that you put your finger on the exact part of the book where I said I thought no one else knew about this, so I knew I had a mental mind meld with Alexandra from way back. You knew about the she, pigeon? You already knew yes, about? It? That's unbelievable. Yes, I knew about the pigeon. In fact. Fact, one time I went to see a musical improv group, and the main joke was that Tesla was having lurid affairs with these pigeons. No! I, oh, yes. that's incredible. I'm, he was, yeah, that guy, what's his name? Cam, not Cameron Crowe, who he's in a relationship. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah. No, there, there's a guy whose Our last store? name is Crow, and he's mated with a, a crane Andrew named Bird? Yeah, and that was Tesla. <laughs> So we should give you an opportunity to explain what your piece is. It's the, oh, first of yeah. all, you explain that the that he was fixated on a particular pigeon, who he loved yeah, I as just a. Go read ahead. His quote, honestly, because yeah. he said, "I love that pigeon. I love the pigeon as a man loves a woman, and she loved me. As long as I had her, there was purpose to my life. When that pigeon died, something went out of my life, and like, I think." I, I don't know. I feel like Tesla was not surrounded by good friends throughout mm. majority of his life. But if he'd had some, they could have been like, buddy, this is a pigeon. Yeah. No, there's sort of a John Mulaney thing that that, that then happens uh, with the pigeon. And it was very funny. Um, and now I'm, I'm going to have, when a man loves a pigeon, stuck in my head all day long. Um, all right. So we, uh, as long as we're on the book. I don't know. Do we have time right now to talk about Moby Dick? The thing is, like, you have a lot to say about Moby Dick. And Mike and I, I may also have to say. Say one thing about Moby Dick, and then Mike and I will decide whether we have anything good to say. Well, my favorite genre of novel is a novel where like, there's some plot, but mostly the author just wants to interrupt that plot constantly to tell you fun facts about an unrelated <laughs> or semi-related subject. So, like, Victor Hugo is also a master of this, where he's like, I you thought you wanted to know about Jean Valjean, but I'm going to tell you how buttons are made. And it's like, <laughs> I guess I guess you will. And Herman Melville is like that, but whale facts. All he has is whale facts. You know, he's got nothing but time, and he wants to just, <laughs> every other chapter is going to be more thoughts he had about whales. And I love that. I wish more books were like that. So, um, anyway, I would like to hear more about whales from Herman Melville. Well, more? Yes. <laughs> like my, you didn't I, get I enough? one good friend to read Moby Dick, and she kept being like, I just, it's half of it's good. And I'm like, which half? But uh, <laughs> she, she liked the plot half. She was you very just, mad that I forced her to slog this, through it. This I is really true, right? He used, to, he used to write naked, didn't he? That was his method? You may I, know another thing that Alexandra Petri doesn't know. I, you know, I, I would trust you that he did that. Um, <laughs> it would be a weird thing to make up. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe I was thinking of Tom Clancy. I have no idea. Yeah. Yes, I did read that. And he, he, like, didn't make any money at all from Moby Dick, right? I no. Mean, he sold almost no copies. Because weirdly, I was reading in another book that like P.T. Barnum somehow was so taken with Moby Dick that he basically killed six whales in the course <laughs> of trying to bring whales to his museum and display them because he forgot that whales needed salt water. So the first two whales, he just gave them regular water. That didn't work. Second two whales, water, and he added salt to it. That didn't work. And the third set of two whales got boiled alive when his museum caught fire. And... So I guess Moby Dick had horrible consequences in like the three copies that it sold. 
Yeah, and I think he, Melville put in the book, don't try this at home or in Bridgeport. Um, <laughs> you know, this is not like a, a manual for, for living. Um, so, you know, Mike, one of the things that I found kind of interesting here, too, is this is all taking place, uh, uh, Alexander's book is taking place against a backdrop, and she points it out right at the beginning, of a lot of arguments about history, manipulation of history, suppression of truths about history. Um, and, and so, in a way, I had a slight frisson of nervousness all the way through, thinking, what if Ron DeSantis reads this book and decides he's going to implement it as curriculum or something? Yeah, that's the, those were my two thoughts. One is that the paperback edition definitely has to include the Ron DeSantis edit, which just a whole bunch of, fa- of things crossed off and replaced with other things that might make <laughs> a very sensitive reader less sensitive. But I do think, I just had Kermit Roosevelt on the show, uh, great-grandson of Theodore Roosevelt, Penn Law professor. And he is out with um, an argument saying that, you know, we should consider the United States founding date as 1868. This is sort of an answer to the 1419 project where the 1619 project, 1419 project is going nowhere. Mm -hmm. 1619 project where they're like, we need to reconsider the founding of America this date, because I guess where America was founded is how you should think about America, but not necessarily. I don't wrecking but roosevelt's idea was to rehabilitate the very sullied idea of the founding fathers and so against that backdrop i love the book i read the book but i even said to myself i wonder when the book was conceived or maybe a few years ago if the idea we need to take the founding fathers down a peg has been in fact so ingrained in our consciousness or the consciousness of the kind of person who maybe took AP US history and would find this book delightful, that that is no longer the thing that we need to do. Maybe what we need to do is elevate the founding fathers, not the really bad ones, but you know, perhaps humanize John Adams and make him really into uh, sexting across the Atlantic Ocean. But that is one of the things that was going on in my head. It didn't, yeah. it didn't get in the way of the humor, but I was saying to myself, I don't know, where are we right now? Now with uh, taking them down a peg or saying standing up for these guys whose statues are literally being toppled. Actually, I went the Alexandra Petri piece where John Adams talks to his agent about why he's not on any currency. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's like, what yeah. do I what do I pay you for? I'm obnoxious and therefore disliked. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think because one of my inspirations actually in writing this was there this book that I, I've been obsessed with ever since it came out called Rush Revere and the Brave Pilgrims, which if you don't remember it, it was Rush Limbaugh's <laughs> hugely perhaps successful series of uh, history, like self-insert historical fan fiction for middle grade readers, where everything that Rush Limbaugh thought was good about the past happened because Rush Limbaugh traveled back in time and told it to the people who did it, which creates a series of time travel paradoxes, but is also <laughs> just like a fascinating, like, document to me and so i i've been obsessed with that and i've all, always been like you know the people who were like we gotta you know stop updating and learning history like they want to go back to sort of something like that and so i was kind of like how do i make like i i too wish to have this gumption i too wish to go back and like uh seize on these things and see what's left in the drawer because i feel like like there's this desire to like make up history like a certain form of history and you can make up as much of that as you want. Like sort of like the, the Bill O'Reilly, like who really killed the moon? It was JFK <laughs> sort of genre of book. And like the, like the dad histories kind of that pile up and pile yeah. up. And I wanted to sort of be like, 
let me get in on that pile and and have a put a twist on it. See, I would say that your depiction of the Constitutional Convention, you know, it's very, very funny. And it's all about, you know, one of the founding fathers is just bored and he's doodling and making a picture of a rabbit and people get more interested in the rabbit. He's drawing than they, what they're supposed to be interested. I mean, this is 55 white guys day drinking and putting together this constitution that kind of sits in defiance of John Rawls's idea that a just system is one that you would be living, willing to live under, not knowing which situation you would be born into. This is like the opposite of that. <laughs> it's a document where the way that you are going to be treated and live is going to be utterly determined by, you know, who you are born as. And Alexandra, I don't know. I mean, I really, this is one of my favorite things in the, in the book is, is these, these notes uh, that were these, and these complaints about the fact that only one person is taking notes. But if anything, <laughs> you made them cuter and funnier than I think they are. No, I feel like it's sort of like the, carelessness of like the people who are in the room at the time like being like we're gonna goof around so i was just like here are like some serious consequences of this like yeah. let me like play up the sort of the goofing around and the fact that like madison was the only person who's doing these notes so i feel like like the frivolousness is kind of part of part of the point so yeah. if they seem goofy i've succeeded Right. Um, there is no comedy in reverence and comedy best uh, best shows itself when you have a very serious wall to bounce the rubber ball against. Why class clowns are a lot e easier than, you know, um, I don't know, football stadium clowns. But I did have uh, just to come back to it. I wasn't offended that the founding fathers were being uh, portrayed as totally goofy. I just kept wondering where we where we were and what is the you know when you when you have comedy there's the assumption that okay we all think x but let's now tweak it a bit because let's think about a few degrees off of x how comfortable is it doing comedy if we're not even really sure what the we all think x part of it is that's an interesting point well we have to take a little break here so i can do a commercial for the gist uh no something ah. will happen during the break uh and then we'll come back and then at the end, I don't know, Mike, if you know about this, but Alexandra is threatening to give us some kind of quiz, uh, which I Demand fear. documents to base oh, my answers. There we on. go. Yes. That's that little guy who spoke to me all those years ago. What was it? 85. That poor man, they're going to eat him alive. Oceans rise, empires fall. Next to Washington, they all look small, all alone. Watch them run. They will tear each other into pieces. Jesus Christ, this will be fun. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to Hartford for recovery. 
For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. We are the mediocre presidents. You won't find our faces on dollars or on cents. There's Taylor, there's Tyler, there's Fillmore, and there's Hayes. There's William Henry Harrison. I died in 30 days. We are the adequate, forgettable, occasionally regrettable, caretaker presidents of the U. That, of course, was from The Simpsons. Uh, my guests today are Alexander Petri, humorous columnist for The Washington Post and author of Alexander Petri's. Uh, well, no, this, that, those, these are the first two books that didn't have her, her name on them. Nothing is Wrong and Here is Why, uh, which was a Thurber Prize finalist. Uh, her new book is Alexander Petri's U.S. History, Important American Documents. It is really, really funny. Mike Pesca uh, is host of the podcast The Gist. He writes the Substack column, Pesca Profundities, uh, and he is the editor slash author of Upon First the review, the greatest what-ifs in sports history. So ah, there's so many places that it would be interesting to go. But I know that both of you are interested in talking about the Buckley-Vidal debates. <laughs> so um, I don't know, Alexander, maybe you set it up and then, uh, then Mike, you take over. Well, so I have been obsessed with the Buckley-Vidal debate since seeing the documentary Best of Enemies yes. years ago. I was I, I like I saw it and I was like, this is incredible. And then I went and saw it again. And then I like started just researching it. I actually wrote a play about them that uh, oh. in 2020 was supposed to open in a theater in March in 2020, which is, you know, not the best time to open in a physical theater. So I've just been haunted by like the manner in which they were debating, just like mm. all of the stuff around it, because they basically were like, what if you know, we had these two guys with the most mid-Atlantic accents in the history of humankind <laughs> come and sort of lounge in chairs under a very weird backdrop that then fell apart because ABC was in sort of a hole financially. And what if we had these two guys come and do commentary for all of the nights of the Republican and Democratic conventions? And so they went to Miami when Nixon was uh, being nominated and then they went to Chicago which, you know, for the convention of 1968, when there were all kinds of things happening uh, and protests and just massive things. And it finally culminated with Buckley possibly about to punch Vidal, calling him a slur. It just like a big old mess. And the dawn of punditry, uh, many have argued. So, yeah, I've, I've been obsessed with it. And I have read pretty much a I'm slowly working my way through all of Gore Vidal's oeuvre. I took God and Man at Yale to the beach. I like, anyway, I, I, I've, I'm trying to be sort of a completist. And just because it, it, nobody talks that way anymore. And, and just to remind people what you're talking about, we are going to play a little clip here before Mike jumps in. Uh, this is a little. This is actually the thing that she's talking about. This is sort of the moment that became kind of burned into time. So this is a one cap. Mr. Vidal, wasn't it a provocative act to try to raise the Viet Cong flag in the park in the film we just saw? Uh, wouldn't that invite uh, raising a Nazi flag in World War II? Would have. Had similar consequence. You're so People in the United States uh, happen to believe that the United States policy is wrong in Vietnam and the Viet Cong are correct in wanting to organize their country in their own way politically. 
If it is a novelty in Chicago, that is too bad. But I assume that the point of the American democracy yeah. and some is you can express to any point of view you want. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people were pro-Nazi, and the answer is that they were, they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro-crypto-Nazi I can think of is yourself. Failing that, that's, I would that's, only that's say that we can't name. have now listen, you the right of assembly. Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling I'll names. I'll your goddamn face, and you'll stay plastered. There, there it is, American rhetoric at its most elevated. So, Mike Pesco, you have the conch shell. I love William F. Buckley. He can't even be bothered to utilize all of his mouth in enunciating words. <laughs> but Alexandra, as someone who has given life to them and created dialogue uh, for them, I ask you, without a pun and keeping in mind the nature of the slur, who's the straight man in this exchange and does can great comedy work without one? Mm, good question. That, I think it's interesting because to me, like, they're both sort of th- this moment is, I think, where like Buckley reveals sort of the the real, the menace that's been in this the whole time. So I, I think Vidal is kind of the straight man in the sense that like Buckley's been like, you've been here on sufferance this entire time and I'm going to pull the rug out from under you and be like, I no longer view you as a person on a level with me. I've tolerated debating with you, but I, in fact, I'm going to like level this thing that shows that I see you as lesser, this like weird, devastating, hostile, horrible moment. And so I think like, yeah, I'm Vidal is coming out of this uh, much uh, as the, 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 the person with whom I'm rooting for. Yeah. yeah and I, I think one of the other things, Mike, that I notice with Alexandra's writing is, I mean, your ability to capture certain styles, I mean, you really do get sort of the rhythm and cadence and the, you know, and the just the verbal style of each one of those guys. Um, you're writing new stuff for them to say, but it's, it's like AI or something. You're managing to do it. Yeah, no, a few months before Chad GPT, I was sitting there like consuming all of this text and trying to put stuff out. But at least, you know, in the middle of my documents, I don't have a sentence that says, well, as a as an AI, it wouldn't be ethical for me to, et cetera, X, Y, or Z. Or if I do, I've taken it out. Um, you, know, but- you know what would be great if to, to I don't know how sportsy you get, but if you were to inject Stephen A. Smith in a Buckley-Vidal debate, I'm just saying, <laughs> that would be next level. Uh, maybe you commission some work and we could get a GoFundMe to uh, have you come up with that. So I, the other thing that I was thinking about, Mike, is reading this book, there is an assumed level of cultural literacy. Um, and... I mean, for me, I'm a Walt Whitman head or Walt Whitman sampler or something. Uh, And and so, like, (laughs) I actually looked at that and I thought, that's not going to be that funny, Walt Whitman doing, like, a Smash Mouth song or rewriting, you know, Uh YMCA. And and then it's really funny because you've really got him. Uh, And I I had the same thing with the chapter on The Crucible. Now, I was in a high school production of The Crucible. It was a high school on Long Island. And at that time, the accents were unchecked. So it was more like, (laughs) I saw Goody Proctor with the devil. <laughs> I saw Goody Good with the devil. But <laughs> so knowing as familiar as I am as John Proctor with the text, it sang. It was perfect. It was beautiful. And that's one of the things. The closer it doesn't relate, it doesn't rely on caricature. The closer you are, I think, to the actual material, the more you appreciate it. Yeah, I think it works that way too. But Alexander, yeah, you. I was gonna say I'm glad to hear that because I also do deeply. 
appreciate the crucible, but it's completely ridiculous in a way that I hope I was able to capture because all of it, just like the, the oceans and oceans of stage directions and <laughs> how everyone's speaking in this like slang that isn't quite, you know, he's like, it's going to sound off in the same way that like in West Side Story, when they're like, we're going to come up with a cool slang for everyone to use. And it won't sound dated because it's not current slang. And the answer is no, in fact, it will sound dated. But uh, yeah, just, just all the I blinky and that's that sort of thing. So it, it was fun to return to a lot of the things that I'd been either forced to read for school or had dived into on my own and <laughs> try to see if I could uh, surface a few more feet of the material. I mean, one of, you, one of your pieces is a joke off of a, quote, famous, unquote, sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Now, having had the major that I had in the place that I went to, I've read that sermon. <laughs> I've read quite a bit more Jonathan Edwards, too. But I was thinking, wow, are people... But really, the, the joke isn't that. The joke is that he uses the image of a spider, and you write this thing totally from the point of view of the spider. So if you think spiders are funny, you're gonna, you'll be fine. Oh, well, I've actually, I've been obsessed with this Jonathan Edwards sermon because to me, this was sort of like the Ur sermon that they insist that you read for unclear reasons. And so it was just the image in my mind when I'm like, I'm going to write a book of fake documents instantly was like, I've got to do something with this sermon. And I kept trying things and they kept not working. I tried one where it was, you may already be a sinner. Look under your chair and find <laughs> out now. And that didn't work. And then I was like, well, what if the, Obama, Clinton, Edwards debates had been Obama, Clinton, and Jonathan Edwards. And let me tell you, that did not work at all. And then finally, I came up with a spider. And if all those fails, just re resort to writing from the perspective of an arachnid. Yeah. Well, there's also a TV psychic named John Edwards. I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you didn't know that because that would have just taken it in another failed direction, I predict. Right. But yeah, that was the fourth option. <laughs> I'd forgotten about him. He talks to dead people, right? That's like We're his crossing th over. What technique? He's like, I'm seeing it either an L or a G or a vowel. Oh my God, <laughs> my uncle Edward had an L in uncle. Right. <laughs> Somebody's <laughs> uncle went to Europe on a vacation. Who is that? Is that anger. Anger towards you. Did you know who it might be? <laughs> well, we should probably take a break here because uh, you know, in a way that should make us nervous. Uh I mean me and Mike. Um Alexandra is going to uh, administer some kind of quiz, possibly accompanied by electric shocks for, long for wrong answers. So let's take a break. We'll come back with our two wonderful guests. We're crowded up close and I see this guy. He's squeezing by. I catch his eye. I say to him, where do you think you're trying to go, boy? Whoa, boy. I say, listen, you runt, you're not pulling that stunt. No gentleman pushes their way to the front. I say, move to the back, which he does with a grunt, which is how I save Roosevelt. Then, well, I'm in my seat. I get up to clap. I feel this tap. I turn the sap. He says he can't see. I say, find a lap and go sit on it, which is how he I say. He was hard to swear and he climbed on a chair. He was aiming a gun. I was standing right there. So I push it as hard as I could in the air. I actually just want to confess something for a second, which is that I've been really nervous about the show for three or four days. Usually as the host of a show, I mean, we have really interesting guests who have been booked and they have interesting material and stuff like that. But it's sort of on me to breathe life into the whole thing and get everybody going and stuff like that. So here I've got a show with Alexander Petri and Mike Pesca. And I kept thinking, if this isn't a good and interesting and funny show, I am nothing. I am I am worthless. So I'm, I had nothing to worry about as it turned out. But uh, before we get into more with them, we have to thank Kat 
Matt Pastor, who, by the way, uh, did produce, I think, one of Stephen A. Smith's uh, radio shows. It went, went the whole thing. The whole thing she produced. Cat Pastor is the uh, technical producer of this show. And Betsy Kaplan, uh, senior producer emeritus of The Colin McEnroe Show, came back to produce this particular episode. Uh, she, she keeps trying to get out. We keep pulling her back in. Our guest today is Alexandra Petri. Her new book is Alexandra Petri's U.S. History, Important American Documents. Mike Pesca is host of the podcast The Gist. He writes a Substack a column, Pesca Profundities. And we really do recommend tuning into The uh, Gist, which, like this show, is a weekday show with a Saturday special. Uh, and uh, always, what's, what's, what's on today? Do you even know? I mean, you must be doing so many different things at once. I will be playing some of the extant tape of uh, Ron DeSantis uh. and our interview is with Stephen Vladek about the shadow docket and Pesca Plus subscribers get more, but we also get heavily into Mets fandom. Ah. I don't know how it incorporates. <laughs> right, it, but it does. All right, Alexandra, I guess you're in charge of things right now, which is a scary thing for me to say. Yes, no, this is, it, it, it's scary for me as well. So we can uh, hold you, you well, didn't make David well, Platts play any game. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I, I, I'm re- ready, though. All right. So this is basically I'm going to ask each of you a trivia question, and hopefully one of you will get one of them wrong, and then that person will be – and then the, the winner will get a final question. But if not, you will both get the final question, and I will ask it to you in an alternating manner. All right. Such is my plan. Okay. Uh, I didn't good. really understand that entirely, but no, no, no good. I'm, I'm trying to confuse and bewilder you and our listeners. Just what you want. Yeah, um, my, so, now Jeopardy's telling us where the daily doubles are beforehand, yeah. and now this. I don't know how to take it. <laughs> All right. So, I, my first question is going to be for Mike. So, it, it's a simple trivia question. Okay. About George Washington and the cherry tree. Okay. According to Parson Weems' George Washington biography. Which of the following did George Washington's father say to him when he said that he could not tell a lie he had cut down the cherry tree? Was it, thank you for your honesty, or run to my arms, you dearest boy, run to my arms, glad am I, George, that you killed my tree, for you have paid me for it a thousandfold. <laughs> Such an act of heroism in my son is more worth than a thousand trees, though blossomed with silver and their fruits of purest gold. Okay, so I'm going to lay out my thinking. Mm. Parson Weems seems more to be choice B. However, I know that you would, in- you Alexandra, would have enjoyed very much to write choice B. In I'm still going to say choice B. You're correct. It is choice B. <laughs> I, I, w- I would to say your thought process would have been the same of my as mine, except that I would have actually stayed with the idea that she was seduced by the opportunity to write like that, uh, and so I would have gotten it wrong. Ah. All right, well, Colin, here we go. Don't trust your instinct, Colin, whatever you do. (laughs) (laughs) So the quote is as follows. Liberty's mouth was so close to my face that his whiskers tickled my ear. I whispered back, nobody is going to use you. They might as well try to tame a thousand wild horses with nothing but a whistle. Is this or is this not a line from Rush Limbaugh's series of self-insert historical (laughs) fiction novels for middle grade readers? See, we're still in the same position, Mike, which is that she would enjoy writing something that dumb, but Rush would write something that dumb. Right. Rush couldn't avoid it. Yeah. I'm I'm going to say that it is in it. It is in that thing. It is. All right. One and one. Okay. Well, I've got 
I've got no, more it's unfair because Colin followed Rush for many years I did. on a commercial radio show. So he knows his timbre. He knows his right. cadence and he knows how often he would speak of Liberty's whiskers. I, actually, for 16 years, I either preceded Rush, immediately preceded Rush or then immediately followed him. So, yes. Um, well, yeah, Liberty's actually a talking horse in this situation. <laughs> ah. He's Mr. You know. He's Mr. Ed Liberty is his, his name. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Rush. well, I'm going to... I'm going to go back to Mike. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, according to the campaign song, little know ye who is coming if John Quincy not be coming. What is coming if John Quincy Adams not be coming? Mm. A, famine. Tradition. B, Bannon. C, plunder. D, wonder. E, slavery. F, knavery. G, jobbin. <laughs> H, robin. I, This, this is so cruel. K, fear and pestilence. K, hatin. L, Satan. M, all of the above. No, it's not all of the above. It's A, C, uh, E, G, and I. It's all of the above. Damn. I'm sorry. Uh, I thought Steve Bannon was the wrong, was the obvious trip up answer. Yeah. Sorry, it's Bannon with an I. I didn't enunciate properly. Ah, uh, that's what got me. Yeah. All right. I, I yeah. thought the same thing. I thought it was Bannon. I mean, right. I thought I would. Well, all Colin. Right. And for perdition not to be mentioned on the list, I don't know. I think I would have voted against JQA. I mean, and he wasn't wrong because what came after he did not uh, take the presidency was, you know, Andrew Jackson. So the song was not hyperbole as much as it wanted to be. So, okay, Colin. Yes. Here's a quote. Well, there was a party once not far from here, which was composed of ladies and gentlemen. A fine table was set and the people were greatly enjoying themselves. Among the crowd was one of those men who had the audacity, was quick-witted, cheeky, and self-possessed, never off his guard on any occasion. After the men and women had enjoyed themselves by dancing, promenading, flirting, etc., they were told that the table was set. The man of audacity, quick-witted, self-possessed, equal to all occasions, was put at the head of the table to carve the turkeys, chickens, and pigs. The men and women surrounded the table, and the audacious man being chosen carver wetted his great carving knife with a steel and got down to business and commenced carving the turkey. But he expended too much force and let a fart a loud fart, so that all the people heard it distinctly. As a matter of course, it shocked all terribly. A deep silence reigned. However, the audacious man was cool and entirely self-possessed. He was curiously and keenly watched by those who knew him well, and they suspected that he would recover in the end and acquit himself with glory. The man, with a kind of sublime audacity, pulled off his coat, rolled up his sleeves, put his coat deliberately on a chair, spat on his hands, took his position at the head of the table, picked up the carving knife and wetted it again, never cracking a smile nor moving a muscle of his face. It now became a wonder in the minds of all the men and women how the fellow was to get out of his dilemma. He squared himself and said loudly and distinctly, now by God, I'll see if I can't cut up this turkey without farting. (laughs) Who told this story? Oh, who told the story? Yep. Huh. Oh, boy. See, I, I I had a theory about who was being talked about. But um, who told the story? Wow. I'll give you a hint. Donald Trump described him as someone who did something that was very important to do, and especially at that time. So, <laughs> so Lincoln told the story? Yes. Oh. Well done. I thought it was going to be about Lincoln. I didn't think it was Lincoln telling a story. That would, my, if, if the question had been, who is it about? All right, we have time to ask you one quick question. Um, 
And I think you're going to get it because of all of your Moby Dick stuff. But, you know, Moby Dick is sort of based on two uh, different whales. And one of them is that Essex whale. But the other one uh, is a whale that was named after a Chilean island uh, near where sailors first encountered him. Do you know what that whale's name was? Oh, my gosh. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. I'll give you some. I'll give you one hit, which is it's two names. And the second one is Dick. I, I think oh, that's Mocha Dick. Mocha, Mocha Dick, Dick yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really I dangerous setup that I just gave. The minute it was out of my mouth, I thought, this is like a Dan Savage question or something. You know, I shouldn't have put it that way. But, um, yeah. For, for uh, the Savage Love Premium cast subscribers, yes. Right. The ultra, and yeah. apparently, and this is sort of interesting too, he. He was a, a 70-foot albino sperm whale known for swimming calmly next to the whaling boats. But on the Aww. first sight of a harpoon, he would suddenly try to destroy the boats. When he was so finally killed— The precursor to the orcas now. Yeah, and he was finally killed around 1839. He had at least 19 harpoons lodged in his sides. So, so a mocha and an albino simultaneously, a whale for perhaps our demographic moment. <laughs> <laughs> I won't even touch that or or anything called Mocha Dick for that matter. But, um, well, Alexandra, it's really been so much fun. And we've I think this has been a, a nice little sort of reunion. So I don't know what's your next book going to be about or maybe in the next uh, Mike Pesco book. Can we get back together again? I've got to think of another book. <laughs> we should quickly say while you were writing this book, you had a baby, right? Or you just you had a baby that messed up your deadline yes. or something. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. Uh, they both emerged at around, around the same time. I was, in fact, working on the Hemingway chapter, like as I was about to go to the hospital. So um, my uh, my assumption that no child of mine would arrive pro- promptly, g- given my own history with promptitude, uh, which if you want to learn more about it, there's a chapter called The Hour Men, uh, which is how I think I would have functioned as a Minuteman. Uh, but yeah, I thought 40 weeks is more of a guideline. It turns out, no, they're pretty calm. Um, so that was a little conversation you had to have with your editor. Yes, it, it was. It was. All right. Um, but she she showed up in time and so did the book, ultimately. And part of it was I thought the like the year 2021, which is when the book was due, after the pandemic got underway, I lost all conception of time. And so they're sitting there being like, you know, your book is due. And I'm like... What year is it? Right. Time has no meaning anymore. Hey, we have to go. But thanks so much to Alexandra Petri. Uh, her new book is Alexandra Petri's U.S. History, Important American Documents. Listen to the gist, our favorite daily podcast, even more than our own. Today with Mike Pesca.